Well, friends, good morning. It's always good to be with you. Um, it's going to be sad next week to, to have that as the, the last hurrah and then right off into the sunset, but excited for your August, too. I'm not even sure who's preaching, but it'll be great. So um, let's, uh, let's look at God's Word. And um, would you stand with me this morning as we read God's holy and inerrant Word? And this is Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12. The words of David. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Uh, and before we get going, let's, uh, I'll pray for us and we'll settle our hearts. Um, Lord, thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for the word that we hear and read and long to understand more of what you would have for us, Lord God, and, and to understand more of who you are and your goodness, your holiness, your glory, your majesty. Lord, thank you for bringing us together today. Um, and Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we look to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I want to start with a story, and, and this is disclosure, where I'm just asking for an umbrella of grace. We all have a past. We have a history. So back in the day, this was 30-something, 30 35 years ago, um, I had this pattern, uh, this ritual, where uh, about this time of year, a little, maybe a couple weeks from now, uh, getting closer to August, we would have two-a-day football practices. This is high school. My dad was a football coach in high school, and... Um, in my brothers in my family, we were kind of, you, you have to play, right? Even though I didn't like it and I wasn't particularly good at it. But went out for football. Basketball was my thing. I wanted to play that all the time. And so we would have these two-a-day pr uh, practices. Um, once in the morning, at about 8 o'clock, and I would go and get worn out. But then get done with practice, and while other dudes were maybe going to go home, take a shower, and take a nap, I wanted to go play basketball. So I was like, well, I don't need to shower. I'll just get sweaty again. And so I would go play basketball the rest of the day until the evening football practice. And after I'm done playing basketball, I didn't want to shower because I'm just going to get sweaty at the second football practice. But by the time the second football practice was over that night, I'm too tired to take a shower. And so this would go on. My mom says this happened for like weeks at a time. And I, I would kind of be like, well, I'm like a camel. I can go for days without water. It's fine. When I got married, Marshall was like, no, because it, it went beyond, right, just high school two-a-day football practice. It kind of went beyond that where I was like, I don't, I don't need that. I'm relatively clean. And um, Marshall thankfully said no. And so my morning routine now 30 years later is maybe similar to yours. Um, so like this morning, I got up um, ridiculously early for whatever reason. I think that's just a part of age. But had my cup of coffee, did my devotions, 
um, I had breakfast, and then I participated in this ritual cleansing exercise. It involves hot water, soap, shampoo, uh, toothpaste, uh, a Listerine chaser sometimes, and, um, and that's an everyday thing. Maybe throw in a little cologne on pulse points. And so I can come here this morning and, and every day go to work and not feel like I'm being particularly offensive to, to those around me. And again, maybe you have a similar type ritual as well. So ritual cleansing was also required thousands of years ago for ancient Israelite priests. Only that ritual cleansing was a lot more elaborate than my own or ours collectively in Western culture. Washing with water was the easy part. And in the Septuagint, the Old Testament um, written in Greek, translated into Greek, it was actually this word baptizo, where you would go through a cleansing process with water. You would wash yourself with water. But that was followed with putting on very particular clothes, having oil put over your head, and we're like, that's a little strange, but I kind of get it. Oil, kind of like conditioner or moisturizer, that's, that's okay. But then things got weird. Bulls and rams were brought forward and sacrificed at this altar, and some of the blood from those animals was put on the priest's right earlobe and thumb and big toe, and the blood from those animals was splashed on the outside of the altar, or the, 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 outside the tabernacle, and only then were the priests and the altar clean. Now, there's a meme I want us to put up. Can we do that, Michael, maybe? I don't know if you can see this. Now, this came from, I don't speak meme world very well, but my daughter showed this to me back a few years ago from a website, Don't Go Here, but it was, I think, like a Reddit site, Dank Christian Memes, and you get stuff like this. And can, can we read that? Is there any way to lower that? So, like, later, when we do communion... And we're told this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And think of a new person who's just come in. They're not familiar with what I just talked about, Old Testament uh, ceremonial ritual cleansing for priests, or even that communion practice where we hear the words, the blood of Christ given to you. Think of what a person must think. If you're not familiar with those things this morning, you're here, I'm not really, I don't speak Christian, I certainly don't speak Levitical law. My describing this ritual cleansing for Israelite priests has to sound absolutely insane. And I think even for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, you, sometimes you read this and you're like, what? This is, this is so bizarre, impossibly strange. And it is. Because day after day, the priests went through this ritual. And then once a year, in order for the high priest to enter the most holy place, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and a place symbolically where God was thought to be enthroned and dwelling amidst his people, the high priest would have all of those things that I described, plus blood sprinkled on the Ark itself. This idea of blood cleansing. Now, that may seem like a bit of a paradox, We'll get, we'll get back to the blood thing, but we could say, okay, in Western culture today, we may be accused of being preoccupied with cleanliness. I mean, we have bazillion-dollar cosmetics industry, but I don't think we have anything on the ancient Israelites. Our 
concern, I think, is really with cultural norms and maybe vanity. But their concerns were skin disease, unclean animals, dead bodies, bodily emissions, and most concerning of all, sin. Any violation of the Ten Commandments and then the Midrash that accompanied those commandments, the explanation of all the details around that. And so this ritual cleansing for all of these sins bore certain similarities involving water, often hyssop. We we read that in our text. It's a plant, and um, it's kind of a dense shrub, and it would have these little, uh, in its buds, little um, uh, pods of water, moisture, and then blood. And, and the Israelites recognized that even without any potential uncleanliness that came from outside sources, they were simply unclean before God. And so the cleansing rituals given in the law were the means by which they might come before a God who chose to dwell with them. Now, when, when we think, when I think about um, cleanliness in Western culture in America, I'm like, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to be that stinky guy, right? It's, it's kind of focused on the self or other people. But the Israelites, they were very much focused, and the Bible is focused and emphasizes how holy, how pure, how divine God is. It's, it's, it's not so much, yeah, I've got a problem. It's, no, who, who am I compared to this God who is so pure in righteousness, holiness, perfection, and so we think, well, that sort of makes sense. If I was going to go have dinner with, um, with you or, or the president of the United States, I want to get cleaned up. And I take significant pains to do so, to look my best. But we're talking about the creator and sustainer of the universe in whom there is nothing impure or unclean, who is perfect in beauty and righteousness, whose glory and goodness is even beyond our comprehension, before whom the prophet Isaiah could only say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the king of glory. So we better clean up before God. Again, the water, perhaps even the oil makes sense, but blood, let's, let's talk about that. Why any blood at all? And how does blood make anyone or anything clean? Now, we could spend the rest of the morning exploring that, but I want to summarize by putting it as simply as I can, and it sounds kind of offensive. And I think, again, culture, in the church, we can try to hear this, but, but culturally, this would sound really offensive. And I think even like in our best Colonel Jessup, a few good men voice, you can't handle the truth, culture, because here is what it is. Such is God's holiness, and such is our uncleanliness before this holy God because of our sin, that our lives are forfeit before him. What does that mean? Well, just this. If God is truly a God of justice, pure, perfect in righteousness, then there must be a a reckoning. Our sin is an affront to God. And, And remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. Every sin is against God. There's a vertical dimension to every sin, always even as there's one horizontally as well, David and Bathsheba and Uriah. But he says, against you alone have I sinned. And this is where we run into a bit of a conundrum. God is a God of justice, perfect in righteousness and justice, and so righteous that evil cannot be in his midst. And we would read in Habakkuk 1.13 that his eyes are too pure to even look at sin. So what does that do for me? I'm I'm in trouble. 
It just, this whole idea is that God can't simply sweep sin under the rug. No, now everything's okay. Because he's a God of perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. If, this sounds horribly macabre, but if we think of it this way, if our child, if my child was killed, murdered by someone, and the judge says to the killer, you know, I'm sure you feel bad about it, you know, go on, carry on as before, we would say, no, that, that, that's not justice. That's, that's horrifying. And again, we come back and we say, all sin is a violation of God's word, and as a God of justice, appropriate justice meted out looks like death, precisely because God is holy, and precisely because he is just. So thank goodness that God is also a God of mercy. Psalm 85.10, we see justice and mercy meeting together in God. And so this system that we were talking about, this ritualistic system of bulls and rams being sacrificed, and this blood that, was, that seemed to be everywhere in this Levitical system, we say, well, yeah, that's grace. It's, it's a system by which an animal was killed as a substitute for Israelite sinners, for the priest, for the people. The blood of the sacrifice was required. Somebody's got to pay. And God says it's going to be this animal instead of you, sinner. That's why blood is so very critical to the worship of Yahweh in Scripture. Life is in the blood. So all that blood represents. We could look at Leviticus 17 if we wanted to explore that more. Now, you could say, I don't know if I understand all this, and I'm not sure I really dig it so much. Um, I'm not sure that I understand it completely uh, either. But that's where we're at. And so let's consider what David is writing in this psalm. He writes, purge or cleanse, cleanse me with hyssop, this this shrub, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow, there in verse 7. Now, it's obvious to any Jewish person, and, and I think now to all of us who are familiar with the Israelite sacrificial system, at least in part, that David is referring to the sacrifices offered at the altar, bloodshed and sprinkled on the altar to atone for sin. The verb translated as purge is a word associated with making a sin offering or preparing the altar for a sin offering. And so David is saying, I'm unclean. I have a problem and I need to be cleansed before I can come before God and worship joyfully. That's his issue. And here's the question as I think about this in this passage is David's desire, this need expressed in the psalm to be cleansed. We've got the hyssop. We've got the the desire itself in David. But where's the blood in this passage? Where's the blood? We have the sin. Where's the blood? David is king. And all he really has to do is he's saying this, cleanse me, purge me. All he has to do is snap his fingers and the priest can bring out a few more bulls and rams and and make a few more offerings and, and sprinkle the altar with yet more blood. But David in this psalm, he doesn't request that. David recognizes that there aren't enough bulls and rams in the world to make him clean. All the blood in the world is not actually going to make him pure before the white hot holiness and righteousness of God. Not really clean. 
There may be the ritual um, and outward appearance of purity. There might even be greater effort to, to manage behavior and so limit sin against God. But David knows that it's a fool's game. He even writes in Psalm 53, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. And I think if we would fast forward a little bit to the Pharisees, in Jesus' day, they had a predilection towards sin management. They certainly seemed to get the outward cleaning down, but they could never get inside. And that's why Jesus had such harsh words for them. He called them whitewashed tombs. Y'all look great on the outside, but inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Again, our lives are forfeit before God. doesn't matter how much ritual you go through. It doesn't matter how many uh, bulls and rams are sacrificed. We still have the uncleanliness. So let's keep going in verse 10. In verse 10, we read about the heart. Now, my, my brother, I have a twin brother, identical twin brother. And uh, he has a, he's been, he's one of those, like, identical twins, oh, you're exactly the same. No, he's always like two inches taller. He was always a bit stronger, a bit faster, a bit smarter. He has a little bit more hair. It was a, a kind of got gypped on that whole deal. But one thing I got on him, he's got kind of a bad ticker. He uh, was diagnosed a few years ago uh, with a faulty heart. He has this uh, arrhythmia. And when he exercises intensely, it's, it gets him really quite sick. And, and many people have it much worse. And the worst instances, um, you'll see, well, a heart transplant has to be performed. He's not even close to that territory. But about 2,000 heart transplants uh, occur every year with varying degrees of success. Now, I'm talking here about, it with my brother, the actual physical heart, the fist-sized inner organ right, that pumps blood throughout your body. And again, we're like, okay, we're, we're in agreement with the ancient Israelites. Blood is life. But while they have this word for heart, particularly here, and you see throughout Scripture, it's this word lev, they weren't referring to the organ, the internal organ that pumps blood throughout the body. Rather, they were referring to the center of a person, that part of a person um, through which the self or the ego comes to expression, the center of consciousness and will and volition and desire. And, and that too, I think, makes sense to us. We would say, Mick said it of Rocky Balboa, the kid's got heart, and we understand that, right? It's that, that part of you that is the, the core of who you are and your desires and your will. <clears throat> now, here are some statistics about this idea of the lev, the Hebrew heart. And it's distinct from our notion of the heart. 100% of humans have a bad heart. <clears throat> the death rate that results from this bad heart is 100%. A heart transplant is possible in every one of these cases. The survival rate of such a heart transplant is 100%. That sounds pretty awesome, but of course, we're not going to seek a transplant unless we're like, no, I'm sick. I need a doctor to say, my ticker's fine. The old Lev, I'm good. If you don't recognize the problem, we're not going to be able to get treated. The gift of Psalm 51 reminds us that we're desperately in need of healing. 
It's the liturgy of a broken heart. A cry to God acknowledging things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I see it, right? And, and an honest appraisal of my circumstances or even a felt absence, God, and, and other people's sin against me. I, I, my honest appraisal is actually, yeah, the problem is me. It's right here. The sinful self, and no matter how hard I try, I'm afflicted with uncleanliness that no amount of scrubbing or behavior management can seem to address. So we start where the Bible starts and thus affirm that we have the sin problem. Violating God's commands, moral impurity, which seeks to elevate the self at the expense of God and others. A distortion that results in the miserable, death-producing twisting of God's purposes for his creation. And again, I mentioned this last week, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Which is to say that the brokenness is so pervasive, so deeply ingrained in us, that we don't even need to think about it or, or try. From our conception, we're afflicted with this problem. And to this point, Psalm 51 has presented us with this promise of a legal pardon. Though we've fallen woefully short of the target, though we've violated God's commands as David has, though we are bent and twisted, a distortion of God's good creation and the intentions he has for us, we can be granted pardon, forgiveness. And the theological term is justification. When my kids learned this, it was, what, what's justification? I'd ask them, they'd say, just as if I've never sinned. It's a legal declaration. So that we think about it this way, and this is, this is true for if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have received God's grace in Jesus Christ, is when God the Father looks at you, and if he's looking directly at me in his holiness, and he sees, and I'm like, you know, my, my chest cavity is opened up and all of my love, my heart, my desire, my will is visible for him and all the junk, the sin, the shame, the guilt visible to him. But in Jesus Christ, it's like Jesus comes and he stands before me saying, I got this one. And God the Father looks at me, but he's looking at Jesus. And so he says, you, you're righteous. I see the righteousness of Jesus in you. That's justification. God declaring righteousness because of Christ. <clears throat> Jesus paying our penalty, fulfilling the sentence that we owed. Though our sins be like scarlet, we've been made white as snow. How? And this comes back to Jesus by his shed blood. He took our place. He paid the penalty the way, same way that the bulls and the rams were sacrificed. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, sinless, spotless, pure, that white-hot holiness of God in Christ Jesus, he's the one who sacrificed for us because of love. And the early reformers referred to this as justification extra nos, outside of ourselves, not accomplished through um, deeds or works or right thinking, but only the power of God and apprehended by trust in Jesus. And, and we go further than this justification. It's just as if you've never sinned. It, it, we don't just stay there, far from being something that only takes place outside of us. Our justification is deeply personal, we would say even physical. 
not only does God declare us righteous, but he makes us righteous. In other words, we're cleansed, transformed, and made right. And the technical theological term for that is sanctification. Can't ever be separated from justification. Justification is right now, point in time, you are declared righteous, just as if you've never sinned. Sanctification is a process thereafter of you becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And for me, it's painfully slow, but it's happening because it goes right together with justification. They're part of the same, and you can't have one without the other. And so sanctification is the promise by God to give us a heart transplant, a new heart, to change the seat of our desire and our will, the center of ourselves, because we're born with this bad heart, so to speak, and a self that, if left alone, is going to be anxious and alienated, a self that tends to despise God and neighbor. And and, and we feel this alienation in every which direction. We certainly feel it upwardly, uh, apart from Christ. We feel it theologically, right, towards God. We feel it sociologically with people around us. We feel it like with the earth at our feet, ecologically. We feel it internally, alienated from ourselves, psychologically. And so we say, help, help. Like David, we're going to do what, sometimes the only thing we can do, God, I'm going to come to you. I'm turning around, away from you. I'm turning back to you, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to say, God, help. I need a new heart. I need new life. This alienation has to stop. So I turn to you and I pray, God, I know I have a bad heart, or at least I think I do. Something is amiss. All the evidence around me at least points that direction. Can you? Will you help me? And so prayer is an act of repentance. And we're only going to turn that way when we're confronted by something greater than ourselves, when we see something so beautiful compared to the mess that I see in myself, when the anxious senses grace, when the twisted wins something that is pure and undefiled. And when we see that God calls us into relationship with himself and it begins to dawn on us, yeah, I need a new heart. I want a new heart. And I have friends who they would be like, no, I'm fine. It's all good. And come back to no. The first thing you have to do is acknowledge that your ticker's not right. Your love is not right. But I hope all of us here today, and if you haven't, I would invite you to turn to God and say, God, can you help? Something is amiss. Something's wrong. And I can't, I can't fix it. It requires divine help, not human wisdom. It requires repentance, turning towards God in prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, that's David's prayer. The word David uses in verse 10 is this word, bara. Bara means to create. This is what God does, bringing things into existence that hadn't been there before. In the beginning, God bara the heavens and the earth. If God can create light and sky and land and galaxies and stars and planets, fish and birds, animals and peoples, he's not going to have any trouble doing open heart surgery in us. God can. He can do it. The question maybe for some of us is, will he? Will he do that? We have to ask maybe some tough questions. 
does, does God really want to do good things for me? Does he delight in giving what I need the most? What do the scriptures say? Ezekiel 36, God says, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's the promise. That's the covenant of God. And it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, a heart transplant whereby he comes to set up a home in us by his spirit. He desires to do this. He says he will do it. The same spirit given to us, the same spirit that hovered over the waters in the beginning of creation, the same spirit that was in Christ, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually given to us. God giving us not a, not a, a stone heart that, that is cold and aloof, but a soft heart towards him. He changes us from the inside out so that we're a new creation, born again from death to life. God at work in us. That's why David says, if, if this happens, there will be joy. I will respond in joy. Now, think of the words that Jesus, when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, he told them, In Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that's the promise of God to dwell with his people, to redeem them, to never leave or forsake them, to pour out his Holy Spirit, to resurrect them to eternal life, saying, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. That's the covenant. It's the same covenant as the old one, now ratified by Jesus' blood, by Christ himself, which speaks a better word, so that we're forever reconciled to God. Jesus, it's because of his sacrifice. Everything that we do this morning and hopefully every day all points to what Jesus has done. Lived a perfect life, died a death in my place, and rose again from the dead and now intercedes for us and is making us by his spirit more and more like himself. Declared righteous by God the Father and being made perfect by that spirit that dwells within us. And so we can say, okay, well, what about David? Where's the blood for David? Well, it's about a thousand years in the future is what he was looking to, just as we look a couple thousand years into the past for the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to close with this. The Apostle Paul summarized this whole idea in Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice by the atonement of his blood. This morning, do you want to know, am I clean? I mean, you don't, maybe you don't feel it. Am I clean internally, the deepest part of myself? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus of Nazareth who died for you. In him, you are clean, pure, righteous. 
That's the gift of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, for my friends here who um, the gospel sounds um, too good to be true, Lord, would you affirm that it's both too good to be true and it is true, that you, in your perfect holiness and righteousness, would still look at us as your beloved because of Jesus, that you would give us his record because of the blood that he shed, that he would take the blame, he would take the fall, and we would receive the life and sonship counted as your sons and daughters. So Lord, um, I pray that, Lord, as we continue and we take the Lord's Supper, that as we hold these elements here in just a little bit, um, and as we hear even sometimes the, the jarring words, Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed, that, Lord, we would take that in literally and figuratively and know that, Lord, we are counted as clean. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.